Uh, today, I'd like to uh, begin a new, just four-part little series on the importance, uh, the value of the Word of God. And then after we uh, go through this uh, four-part series, we will enter uh, a new book study, which will be on Second uh, Thessalonians. Uh, you'll notice the message today is simply entitled, The Life-Giving Word of God. Uh, next week, we'll look at the parable of the sower on how to receive God's Word and the hindrances that often prevent God's Word from impacting our lives. The third message will focus on the great passage in James chapter 1 that tells us very, very specifically, very practically, how to be transformed by the Bible. What we need to do in cooperation with God to know the full transforming impact of God's Word. And then in the fourth message, we want to look at the matter of obedience and how obedience is the trigger that releases the power of God in our lives to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, the message this morning is extremely simple and has a very uh, specific goal and objective, which is twofold. Uh, number one, to give us an appreciation of God's Word. Uh, that it is life-giving, that it has life in and of itself, and it has the power to change a human heart. But it's also an opportunity for us to evaluate our lives. As believers, is the Word of God accomplishing the work God intended it to accomplish in our lives? And if not, then the next few messages are especially for you. As again, we'll look at next week the hindrances that prevent God's Word from having that impact. And then James chapter 1, how we do cooperate with God as we study the Bible, as we grapple with the Bible, and then uh, that fourth message on obedience. Now, what I'd like to do at the very beginning, you'll notice there in your notes, just an introduction, is just talk very, very briefly. This could be a series of messages in and of themselves, but I, I think it's important for you to be aware of the attack uh, on the Bible. And, when, and in this context, when I talk about the attack on the Bible, I'm not talking about the attack from those outside the church. I'm talking about the attack on the Bible within the church, within those uh, with those who name the name of Christ, who would profess Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And let's just walk through this quick, because I think it's important for you to have an understanding of this, to be sensitive to this, and for us to do everything that we can to resist these attacks and to go forward to advance uh, the Word of God. First, the frontal attack is what uh, we often call liberalism, liberalism that has infected Many of our churches, especially many of our mainline denominations. Now, in liberalism, it teaches that the Bible is not God's inerrant, authoritative revelation to man. It's not God's inerrant, authoritative revelation to man, but instead, it is man's recording of his experiences with God. And in this, from this perspective, therefore, truth is relative and not absolute. You see, liberalism says the Bible merely reflects the morality at the time in which the Bible was written, and therefore we're not obligated to follow biblical morality. Liberalism will take the teachings of the Bible and then bend that teaching to accommodate and conform to the present culture. Instead of seeing the Bible as the standard by which all cultures, all laws are to be judged. And as I mentioned, there are churches virtually in every mainline denomination that have rejected the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. Uh, the Bible's teachings on morality is often viewed as behind the times and as a result, uh, divorce and remarriage are condoned uh, for any reason whatsoever. Abortion, the slaughter of the innocent, is a matter of personal choice. And homosexuality is affirmed as an acceptable lifestyle. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 3, 
that I think really speaks to this danger of liberalism and our need to stand up against it. The Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, the preacher, he said, For the time will come, and that time has come, beloved, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears from the truth. And folks, we have come to that day. And uh, sadly, we're seeing that in many of our churches. The rear attack is coming from mysticism. Now, that word mysticism has, can have a very positive connotation, but here I'm using it in a, in a negative sense. And I'm defining in this context mysticism as religious experience being placed over the Bible. In other words, in mysticism, truth is what happens to me instead of what God says. Mysticism will make the blind assumption that whatever impressions are received or whatever experiences occur in the context of worship are works of the Holy Spirit. A good example of this is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that twists the Bible to focus more on the gratification of man than the glorification of God. Uh, the focus is on exhilarating experiences and using God as a tool to get what you want instead of seeing that you're what? God's tool to achieve His will, to achieve His ends. Uh, the leaders often in these uh, in, in, in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, they boast of visions and often very extraordinary, bizarre experiences with God. And they do this to establish their authority and then to promise people everything from healing to prosperity to happiness to relational bliss if you will follow their teachings, if you will share their experiences. Now, if you try to question them, the response is always the same. Who are you to question someone else's experience? And aren't you afraid that you might be actually quenching the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me share how you need to respond to that. In the same passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, where we read, do not quench the Spirit, in that same passage, we are commanded to examine everything carefully. And that word examine in 1 Thessalonians 5 literally means to test something to determine whether it is genuine or not. Every experience, and listen to me, every experience, every teaching must be brought under the scrutiny of the Bible realizing that the works of the Holy Spirit are never going to contradict the words of the Bible. They're always going to be in harmony. We need to heed Colossians 2.18. It says, Do not allow yourselves to be condemned by anyone who claims to be superior because of special visions. Now, we could say the attack from the right flank comes from legalism. Legalism. And legalism is adding to the Bible man-made regulations that become equal to or even greater than the Bible. God's truth becomes buried under man's traditions. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 7 verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And who did he speak that to? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. Legalism is a cookie-cutter approach to Christianity where everyone has to what? Act alike, think alike, dress alike. Legalism promotes a holier-than-thou attitude that uses fear, shame, guilt to manipulate and control people. The great tragedy is with the focus on externals conforming to the image of Christ is neglected. And spirituality is determined by how well you conform to a list of do's and don'ts. 
that have been made by man, how well you conform to their preferences, how well you conform to their regulations. And then the attack from the left flank, we could say, comes from pragmatism. So we have liberalism, sort of the frontal attack, from the rear mysticism, and then from the right legalism, and from the left pragmatism. And sadly, folks, sadly, we need to be very aware of this. This is what has been significantly creeping into our evangelical churches and infecting them. And it's been hurting us terribly and bringing tremendous compromise and superficiality. See, the bottom line here is successfully reaching people is, is that focus, it's to the neglect of communicating the whole counsel of God's Word. Uh, the primary question with legalism is no longer what does the Bible say, but how can we reach people? Now, don't misunderstand me. We should be very, very concerned about how to reach people. We should be very passionate about reaching our community and our world for Jesus Christ, but not to the neglect of God's Word. See, in pragmatism, they'll use a marketing approach. They will actually discuss what is the best way to package Jesus to make Him attractive to people. And with pragmatism, and hear me as your pastor, because I'm trying to protect you. We're in a day and age when you listen to any preacher or you get involved in any teaching or ministry, you need to be listening not only for what is being said, but what is not being said. Because what happens in pragmatism They'll take out things like repentance. They'll take out things like holiness. It's all feel good. It's all felt needs of man. And packaging the gospel to, to address those issues, but to the neglect of so many other important things. And what's happened as a result of this? We have become more skilled at entertaining people in our churches than educating them in the Word of God. And as a result of preaching what? An easy believism where people are not really committed and, and, and confronted with taking up their cross and following Jesus, uh, we have a, have a lot of professions in our churches, but very few what? Disciples. Very few disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote, What I said and preached had none of the attractiveness of the clever mind. I love that. He said, what I said, what I preached, hey, it didn't have any the attractiveness of, of a clever mind or the wisdom of this world, but it was the demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Plainly, God's purpose was that your faith should not rest upon man's cleverness, but upon the power of God. Upon the, and that's why, what did Paul say? I desire to know nothing among you but what? Christ and him what? Crucified. And he said the preaching of the gospel is what? Considered by many what? Foolishness. But it's the power of God into salvation. So look at that next statement in your, in your note. Just to use it as a bridge to move now into the message. We must stay true to the authority and to the adequacy of the Bible. That the Bible is a supreme authority over every area of life, and the Bible is adequate to meet every need. Look at 2 Timothy. Turn your Bibles now to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and have your Bible handy because we'll be looking at a number of passages this morning, and we'll be running through them very, very quickly. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is what? Inspired breathed on by God. In other words, Scripture did not originate with man. It's not man's recording of his experiences with God. No. Scripture originated with God. It is God breathed as He worked through men as His instruments to record the Scriptures. So, all Scripture is inspired by God and, notice, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that, in order that, the man of God may be what? Adequate, equipped for every good work. 
So now let's look at the life-giving Word of God. And remember, what did I say earlier? What are the two objectives? What are the two goals in this message? Number one, just to increase our appreciation of what we have right here. That these words are life-giving. That this Bible, these words have power in and of themselves to change the human heart and to be adequate to meet every need. But then second, this is a good time for evaluation. Is the Word of God doing in your life what God intended it to do? So notice the first point. The life-giving Word purifies the soul. God intended the Word to purify the soul of man. And of course, this particular message centers around 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and we're just basically going to walk through this and just gain an appreciation of that life-giving power of God's Word and what it accomplishes in the heart of man. And the first thing that we see here is the living Word purifies the soul. Look at verse 22 there in your notes. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. Look at those references underneath. John 17, verse 17. This was Christ's high priestly prayer right before his death. You're familiar with this verse. He said, Lord, sanctify them with thy what? Truth and thy what? Word is truth. In other words, Jesus recognized that the instrument that God uses to bring an individual not only to salvation, but then to grow that individual, to become more and more like Jesus to accomplish our his purposes for our lives, the instrument is the Word of God. And that Word has the power not only to save but to sanctify. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this is an interesting passage. I wish I had more time, just do not. Of course, this is Paul's teaching on marriage and how the relationship between a husband and wife are to reflect the relationship between Christ and His church. But in these verses, let me ask you a question, and then as we read, you answer it. What does Christ use to purify His church? What does Christ use to sanctify His church and to bring us to that place where we're presented to Him as His bride, spotless, blameless, without wrinkle? Notice verse 25. It says, Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then notice verse 26. That he, Christ, might sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the, what? Word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So, what is the instrument that Jesus uses to wash his bride, to purify, to sanctify his bride? The Word of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. What a magnificent uh, couple of verses that emphasize that the Word of God is living, that it's powerful, that it has the ability to affect God's will in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, For the Word of God is, what? Living, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things were open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So again, we see here the Word of God is living, it's active, it's able to discern our motives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our values, our character, our conduct to bring us to conviction so that God has the opportunity to drive us to Himself, drive us to His grace, to conform us, to bring us in harmony with His life, with His character, with His will. And then look at Psalm 19, one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible about the Scripture's power in and of itself to purify the human soul, to change us. 
Psalm 19, I'll begin reading at verse 7, and we'll read uh, through verse, uh, well, verse 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. And notice as we walk through this what the Word of God does. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That word restoring is shoop in the Hebrew text, and it literally means turn back. The Word of God has the power to convert an individual, has the power to move upon a backslidden believer and turn them back to Jesus as their first love. It says the testimony of the Lord. Again, all of these are just synonyms for the Word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. What is more desirable than gold? This, the Word of God, because of its value, because of what it can accomplish in our hearts and lives, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Let's continue. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, it's the word of God that purifies the soul. Now, before we move to the second point, let me just make this simple observation. God gave the Bible not merely for information, but for transformation. And one of the most dangerous things any person can get involved in is a Bible study. Because what happens with a lot of believers, it's nothing more than an academic exercise. And they think because they have gained a degree of understanding of the Bible, a degree of knowledge about the Bible, and they can spit out the right answers to certain questions, that they are growing. But growth occurs when the soul, when the heart of man is purified. If the Word of God is not making you more like Jesus Christ, something is wrong. And the problem's not there. And that's why the next three messages are going to be so vitally important. Because the obvious question should be, well, man, if it's the life-giving Word of God, if it has the power to do all of that, why am I not seeing that happen in my life? And we're going to answer that question the next three weeks because we must cooperate with God in this process. And as I mentioned last, next week, we'll look at that parable of the sower. We'll see the hindrances that often prevent God's Word from, from taking seed in our hearts and from blossoming in our hearts and producing the fruit God in, intended. And then that next week, James chapter 1, how do we cooperate with God in this process of growth, getting into the Scriptures so that it truly impacts, changes, transforms our lives, and then that matter of obedience on the last uh, Sunday. Look at the second truth. The living Word perfects love. In other words, the Word of God, God gave the Word of God not only to purify the human soul to make us more like Jesus, but in making more of us like Jesus to perfect us in love. And this is the proof of the pudding. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. And if your study of the Word of God, if your devotions in the Word of God, if your reading of the Word of God, listening, hearing the Word, it, if it is not growing you in love, something is terribly wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. Look at verse 22 again. It says, for, your, for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. In other words, since you have an obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from your heart. Now look at those cross-references. Turn to John chapter 7. I'm sorry, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. This is Jesus teaching. And look at verses 9 through 14. John 15 this is, of course, his teaching on the, uh, I'm the vine, what you're the branch. 
And it's a result of that union that we what? We know the flow of Christ's life into our branch, enabling us to produce fruit. And that fruit is what? The reproduction of Christ's life. You don't see a vine producing fruit for itself. It provides fruit to what? That others might find nourishment. So the Christian life is not about us. It's about God. And then it's, secondly, it's about ministering to others. It's about loving others. It's about reaching others. And look at what Jesus said in beginning of verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If, look at verse 10 now, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what? What I command you. What I command you. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Turn over there quickly. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 6. Couldn't say it much clearer than this. The one who says... Again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, the attack on the Bible. Just because someone says they're a Christian, just because something says it's a Christian ministry, just because something is successful, it's getting a lot of results, a lot of people, doesn't mean it's necessarily authentic. It has to be judged by the criteria of the Scripture. So he says in verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? liar, and the truth is in him. In other words, what's, what's, what's being said? A true believer is not just a hearer of God's Word, but what? A doer of God's Word. And then notice verse 5, but whoever keeps his Word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. In other words, whoever keeps God's Word, and that's a synonym for obey, whoever obeys God's Word, what's going to be the result? God's love will be perfected. And then he says, by this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And how did he walk? In love. In love. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This says it in a very simplistic fashion. Again, Paul writing to young Timothy says, but the goal of our instruction, don't miss this. Paul is saying, okay, this is the goal of teaching the Word of God. This is it right here. This is its objective. He says, but the goal of our instruction is what? Is love. 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 From a what? Pure heart, there's the purity of soul that we just talked about, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Bottom line, here it is, bottom line, just like we talked about a moment ago. The Bible is not given for information but for transformation. And if you're not being transformed by the Bible, if your soul is not being purified on a gradual, continual basis, something is terribly wrong. And in the same way, if the Bible is not changing your attitude towards other people, if it's not changing the way you act and relate towards other people, something is terribly wrong. Because the goal of the Bible is to bring you to the place, as it says in Philippians 2, where you do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, with lowliness of mind. Like Jesus, you regard others more important than yourself. Not looking to your interests, but their interests. And it will not only change your attitude, but your actions. You go to 1 Corinthians 13. You're all familiar with that passage, the love chapter. And beginning at verse 4, it gives about 15 or 16 uh, descriptions of love. And, in our, and I, this has always amazed me. In the English Bible, these are adjectives, as if it's describing love. But in the Greek text, those are all verbs, action words. 
And what God is saying, this is what Christianity is. This is authentic Christianity. This is what it produces. A love that is what? Long-suffering and is kind. A love that is not easily provoked. A love that does not take into account wrong-suffered. A love that does not seek its own. Look at the third truth. Look at the third truth. Not only does the living Word purify the soul and perfect love, the living Word perpetuates eternal life. It perpetuates eternal life. Now, let me just say a word before we move on. When, when we say that term, eternal life, most people think what? Just living forever. That's really not the way to look at eternal life. When you look at that phrase, eternal life, yes, it means life without end. No question. But it's speaking more of a quality of life. That's a synonym to Jesus Christ. John said, this is eternal life to know Jesus. God's Son. So when you see that phrase, eternal life, don't merely think to live forever. Realize that's a synonym for Jesus Christ. And yes, since Jesus will live forever, those that possess Him will what? Live forever with Him. Look at uh, verses 23 through 25. What great verses. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. And that seed, he's talking about the Word of God. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. Those verses below there, Romans 10, 17, what's it say? Faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. It's the Word of God that, that is God's instrument to bring a person to faith in Jesus Christ. Look at James chapter 1. What another great verse. James chapter 1. Turn there quickly. James chapter 1 verse 21. It says, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the Word implanted which is able, what is able? The Word is able to what? To save your souls. And in a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at this very, very passage. Look at John 6. Turn over quickly to John 6. John chapter 6. Two verses. Just don't have time to look at the greater context. Two verses. First, comment that Jesus made, then Peter's response to what Jesus says. John 6, 63, this is Jesus speaking, says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then don't miss this. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. Folks, this is an extraordinary book. This is like no other book. You need to understand that. These words literally are alive. They are spirit given to us by God. And then notice Peter's response in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. See, Peter got it. He realized that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but through him and his teachings. And then, of course, Romans 1.16. You're all familiar with Romans 1.16. Paul says what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the, what? The power of God. And that power is dunamis. It's the word from which we get dynamite. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. No, because it's the power of God to bring about salvation in Jews and Greeks and anyone who will believe and anyone who will believe. In other words, look at it this way. The Bible is a living seed. And if you plant a seed, you expect something to what? To grow. You expect fruit. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. You shall know them by their fruits. You shall know them by their fruits, he said. He, in that same chapter, he says, there will be many that will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you and didn't we do that for you? A lot of works. And he looks at them and he said, I never knew you. Never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. In other words, these were people who professed Jesus. They got involved in a lot of religious activity and works, but their lives were never changed. There was never the purification of the soul. They were never perfected in love. They never came to know that seed of God's Word being planted in their hearts and blossoming eternal life. And again, not just a life that goes on forever, but a quality of life, the life of Jesus being formed in us to be displayed through us. And then look at the last truth. This sort of really sums it up. The living Word produces spiritual growth. We would expect if this is the life-giving Word of God, if it has the power to produce God's will, then we would expect it to produce spiritual growth in the life of believers. Look at 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, therefore, in light of this fact, Okay, in light of the fact that the Word of God has the power to purify your soul and to perfect you in love and to perpetuate eternal life, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it, by what? By the Word of God, you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. I love Jeremiah 15, 16. The prophet said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And they became the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Matthew 4, remember what Jesus said? Man shall not live by what? By bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the word of God, the Scripture. Turn your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll we'll just have time just to basically read it. But such a beautiful, beautiful truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, last verse in uh, chapter 3 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You know, Andy was... Had you hold up your cell phones or screens and serving as a mirror to see yourself? See what he's saying here. He's saying the Bible is a mirror. But when you look in the, this mirror, who do you see? Jesus. You see the reflection of Christ. But notice, he doesn't stop there. He says, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. He's saying this is a mirror. And when you get in this book, you see the person of Jesus Christ. And this book, as you look at that reflection, has the power then to transform your life and to bring you in harmony with His character, with His love, with His life. 2 Peter 3.18, you know that verse. It says... We're to grow in what? The grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you know the fuller context, he's talking about the Word of God. It is the Word of God that grows us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then just one last verse. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, back in the uh, summer, we went through a uh, book study, uh, verse-by-verse study of uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, you may remember, if you were there, I said this particular verse just literally transformed my life as a new infant believer. I'll never forget when Dr. David Johnson, when I heard him teach on this particular verse, it just all clicked for me about the importance, the value, the power of the Word of God, and my responsibility. Look at verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the Word of God's message, and we're going to look at that matter. How do you receive God's Word over the next couple of weeks? But that, that, that Word has the idea of welcoming God's Word. I mean, longing for it like that newborn baby, welcoming it, and delighting in it, embracing it. He says, you accepted it. That word, decamai, it means that I not only welcome it, I not only receive it, but my purpose, my goal, my, my, my uh, reason for getting into it is to apply it, to use it, to obey it. 
You said you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then notice this last phrase, which also performs its work in you who believe. If you, that, ver, that verse is saying this book, these words, have the power to perform God's work in you. To purify your soul, to perfect you in love, to perpetuate eternal life, to produce spiritual growth. But we also see in this verse, it's a good place to end. We also see we have responsibility in this. But how we receive the word of God. Are we accepting it? Are we cooperating with God in the process? Or are we putting up hindrances that's preventing the word of God from really taking root and from really blossoming in our lives to accomplish what God desires. And then in closing, just look right there at the very end of your notes. What did this tell me if, if I were to a- apply this? And let me be very simple. Goodness gracious, learn God's Word. If the Word of God, if the word of God is the life-giving, uh, has the life-giving power to change my life, then goodness, get in it. And how do you learn God's Word? You've got to study God's Word. How do you expect to grow if you never study God's Word? Every person in this church, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm, you know, my, my gift of prophecy sometimes, it just, I know it comes across harsh, but I just so love you. Every believer in this church needs to be in a small group where you're studying God's Word. It's not just enough here. You, it's, you need to be in a study where you're being challenged on a regular basis. So you ladies need to get involved in that precept study on Wednesday mornings or that tu- Tuesday morning study. We ha- we'll be starting a ladies study on Wednesday. Our Sunday school classes. Why would our people neglect those precious special groups where you can, g- you can get linked up with believers for mutual encouragement and accountability, but for the study of God's Word, to get in God's Word, to learn it, to obey it, to let it transform you. And then what? Not only learn God's Word, but what? Love it. Love God's Word. As it says in Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That dwell means be at home in your life. You want to welcome it. You want to, you want to open the door and say, oh, come in. I, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to embrace you. And then live God's Word. And how do we live God's Word? Well, 2 Corinthians 3 talks about some of those Corinthians becoming walking, living epistles of God's truth. Isn't that a great phrase? Living epistles of God's truth. Through what? Through obedience. So I want to love God's Word by studying it. I want to love it by embracing it, longing for it, delighting in it. And then I want to live it by obeying it. So again, folks, I believe that this is a very, very important series. And I believe the next three weeks are of extreme importance because I hope this morning you get a newfound appreciation of God's Word, its power. You, you see what, how God wants to use God's Word in your life. And now the next few weeks we'll see how we can cooperate with God in that process to see this happen. Our souls purified, perfected in love, perpetuating eternal life, and producing spiritual growth. Father, thank you for the Word of God, your truth, inspired by you, breathed out by you. Thank you that it's authoritative. Thank you that it is not cold, legalistic regulations. As we read in John 15, truly the person that gets in the Word of God with the right attitude to receive it, to welcome it, to live it, is going to know joy and joy in full. So it's a secret to true joy, to true happiness. It's the, it's the secret of being everything you desire us to be. And, and Lord, that is our desire to know Christ's life formed in us to be displayed through us that we might be faithful to you. So uh, bless now, uh, speak to our hearts, for it's in Jesus' name we do pray, amen. As the invitation is extended this morning, I, I know this message was uh, primarily Uh, to believers, but you're possibly here, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, You never made your heart His home. That's where it all begins. It begins by receiving Him, by receiving Jesus into your heart to forgive you of your sin as the one who paid for the penalty of your sin when He died on Calvary's cross. And then realize He's also the one that rose again as Lord of all 
And so you not only receive him as Savior to forgive you your sins, but you bow that knee to his authority to follow him in obedience, to get in the Word of God, realizing that's where you're going to find his plan for your life. So if you don't know Jesus, it would be my appeal to you that right now, this moment, to ask him in. And then come down this aisle and just simply before this group say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. This morning, I trusted him as my Lord and Savior. And I want to join with this family of God to honor him and to love him. And then believers, I trust you all respond. Uh, whether you come up or just remaining there in the pew, what's God said to you about your relationship to the Word of God? If nothing else, I pray that every one of you will make a firm commitment to be back the next three weeks because these next three messages will be extremely important because we'll get into the how-to. So stand as the invitation is extended and you simply be obedient to God speaking to your heart. appreciate all those that uh, came forward, but I, uh, Janice gave me permission to share this with you. Uh, Janice Fletcher came up, and, you know, she, she lost her husband, and, and she came up in tears, and she said, you know, Brother Andy, uh, shortly after Bill's death, you remember visiting me in my home, and I, and I said yes, and she said, you told me at that time the importance of, of the Word of God to be able to get through this process, and I gave her a little prescription that I, I share with many people uh, about how to read five psalms every day and how you can go through the entire psalms in a month. For example, uh, today is what? April 21st. So you'd read Psalm 21 and then every 30th psalm. Psalm 21, Psalm 51, 81, and on where you read five a day. And she said, you know, you shared that with me and I, I, I didn't really respond 
She said, I began reading every book I could get my hands on, on uh, widowhood and from different things, and I found no comfort. And then I went back to what you asked me to do, and she says, it's been just beautiful. It's just been wonderful how God has used his word uh, to bring comfort, uh, to bring healing, uh, to bring strength. And that is the life-giving power of God's word. Uh, As we're going to see over the next three weeks, uh, the issue is what? Us getting so desperate and so dependent that we come to God, what? In brokenness. Uh, Realizing there's no point doing it our way anymore. It's about time I start doing it, what? God's way. And really welcome and embrace and receive his word and let it have its effect in my life. So thank you for, for being here. Remember, ladies, as we depart, I believe Angie Maldonado will be at the information desk to be able to take your reservations for the uh, women's uh, uh, tea. Uh, Remember our home fellowships uh, this evening and guests. I hope all of you will come to uh, our home fellowship. I'm a little disadvantaged tonight. My my wife's out of town visiting her dad up in in Maryland. So I'm the one providing dinner, folks. So... uh, it's okay. You can buy a lot of stuff at the store. You can buy a lot of stuff at the store, so you don't have to worry. Uh, we're we're, we're going to have deli sandwiches, all right? Okay, and some potato chips, so we'll, we'll be fine. Uh, but we would love to have you. We'd love to have you. We meet at 6, and we end up at 7. And um, yes, ma'am, this is my daughter, Carissa, trying to tell me. I think she's just, she's very thankful that Andy is here, Andy Johnston. Her and, her and Andy go way back, and at some point, Andy, her, you know what her nickname for Andy is? Goose. Goose. Because at, at some time, y'all must have played Duck, Duck, Goose together or something like that. So she always, that's what she always calls Andy, Goose. So, uh, so she's very, very ex- excited that he's here. So bow with me in prayer, and you're dismissed. Father, thank you, thank you. Uh, for your preciousness, and not only giving us the living word, Jesus, but the word of God, which in and of itself is living and has the power to bring us to Christ and to sanctify our lives as we trust you. And uh, Lord, we realize the Bible is not an in and of itself, that its goal is to bring us face to face with the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, to sell our lives out to his infinite worth and value. So Lord, do that in our lives, do that in our church. And, uh, Lord, renew, revive, and restore as only you can. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.